Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Well, I want to welcome all of our campuses, Morristown, New Brunswick, Internet Campus. What up? I'm Pastor Tim. I want to welcome you to part two of our current series, Identity Theft. It is a, a series that's really all about our spiritual identity, who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And you might be surprised to learn that many of us have, in fact, been robbed by religion. Who is that handsome devil? Looks familiar, doesn't he? It might be weird to hear that, actually, coming from a pastor. I mean, you are in a church, after all. When you hear about robbed by religion, you assume religion is the pathway, actually, to God. But it is, in fact, a lie, as we are about to find out today. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Each one of you has one in your chair. If you're watching on our internet campus, just click the button. Let us know. We will send you one. We'd love for you to follow along with us each week. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, would you? It's verses 9 through 14. It's on page 728. And uh, this is an unsettling passage for a lot of people. Because most of us assume religion is what gets us into heaven, what allows us to get accepted by God, right? I mean, it's why we try to live good lives, do the right thing, follow the rules, be good people. In fact, that's why we're in church. We assume if we do all these things, we act morally, we, we make responsible choices, we attend church or we attend mass or we, we read our Bible and pray, in the end, eventually it will lead us closer and closer to God. And the truth is, religion can do just the opposite. That is, you can spend a lifetime going to church or exerting great moral effort and doing all sorts of religious stuff that you think is earning you points. And the reality is, you have fallen from one of the oldest tricks in the book. Let's read this together. This is Luke 18. We're going to start at verse 9, okay? It reads this. It says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, <laughs> robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, went home, what? Justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus said, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. During his ministry on earth, Jesus was constantly telling stories about what it meant to truly know God or in a personal way. The way he put it, he said, is to live in the kingdom of God. And to illustrate that, he told parables, which were pretty simple stories, but had a profound spiritual meaning. Um, and Luke writes, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, who looked down their noses, Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go to church. We're going to let this handsome devil represent the Pharisee. Let us call him Joe. Smiling Joe. And he's our Pharisee. He's our good religious type. He's all dressed for church and you can see him. And what we're going to do is let this dude represent the tax collector. We'll call him James or, or, or just Jimmy. How about that? And what you see here is a big contrast in their external appearance. 
And you know what? That's what Jesus' audience actually would have understood because he was setting a contrast between these two guys. I mean, on the one hand, you have this Pharisee who was a religious leader of Jesus' day. And the word Pharisee literally meant the separate ones. And they had over 600 rules and regulations they followed to separate themselves from ordinary people who were blowing it. It's very interesting. From early on, childhood Pharisees actually trained, they actually memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, called the Torah. Word for word. I mean, some of you, can you even name the first five books of the Bible? By the age of seven, they had every word memorized, if you can imagine that. And young Pharisees trained to actually be scholars in the law. And they led lives that were morally meticulous. They had over 600 laws governing everything from what you could wear to how to wash your hands to how to even organize your spice rack. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, Pharisees were not just the spiritual leaders of Israel. They had sworn themselves in as the religious police. And they deputized themselves to point out how bad everybody else around them was failing. So different in church today, isn't it? On the other hand, Jesus said, here's this tax collector who goes to church too. And tax collectors were widely considered scum of the earth in the first century culture. It's not much different today, is it? I mean, when you hear tax man, right? But you'll notice it's not a, a suit-wearing, prim and proper like IRS agents. Uh-uh. In the first century, tax collectors literally were the lowest of the lows among people. They were dirty and they were underhanded and they were notorious for cutting the legs out of vulnerable people. In other words, while they were Jewish, they were street-level pimps who went to work for the Roman government. And they extorted taxes out of people, shake down their Jews, and for, under the threat sometimes of physical violence, they collect taxes, give it to Rome, and keep a cut for themselves. So when Jesus' audience heard this parable, they would have universally booed when this guy was announced. Can we all do that? Boo, tax man, yeah. And it says two men, these two guys meet at church one day. And people listening would have naturally thought, well, this should be interesting. I mean, take a look. Let's just be honest about this. Which one of these guys do you think is more likely to be found in a church? Which one, right? The Bible scholar or the greedy pimp? Let me ask you this. Which one do you think the majority of church people would identify with? (laughs) Which one do you identify with better? (laughs) The reality is the vast majority of people identify with smiling Joe here, right? That's why the majority of people dress up for church. They want to look their best. Now, I am, I am, <laughs> I'm so glad you guys didn't feel that pressure today. I mean, for us at Liquid, we kind of put a very low bar. It's like if, if the worship leader shaves, that's a win. But uh, most people dress up for church. It's an amazing thing. The point is this. We all dress appropriately for the roles we play publicly. It's how we signal what tribe or what camp we belong to. So if you are a clean-living, Bible-toting Southern Baptist, or you're a uh, cross-yourself-and-clutch-the-beads Catholic, you go wingtips to church. On the other hand, if you are a sex and drugs and rock-loving rebel, you just raid Pastor Mike's closet. And you come like this. I'm serious. I mean, look at the guy. The scowl, the tats, the, the ripped jeans. Although I got to say, the belt is pretty cool. I like that. It's kind of a... But you look at this guy and, 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 you know, what do you assume about him? I mean, I know if you're under 25, it's like, well, he's uber cool. But let me ask you, if you're in a parking garage at 2 a.m. and you need change for a 20, 
Which one of these guys are you going to ask? Why? Because politicians, church people, want to appear trustworthy and respectable. And religion says the outside is simply an indicator of what's on the what? On the inside. We call these boundary markers. And the Pharisees had over 600 of them that they believe set them apart from other people like this. Now, here's the deal. Time out. We can't scoff so much at Smile and Joe here. Because let me ask you, if you were to take the Bible literally, I mean, you attempted to fulfill every rule, law, and guideline for righteous living in this book, how do you think you would do? I well, Last year, the editor for the magazine known as Esquire tried to find out the answer. His name's A.J. Jacobs. And what he did is he's in his 30s. He grew up agnostic, didn't practice any religion, never read the Bible. And after he became a first-time father, he wondered, is there anything missing to life here? And so for a full year, he undertook an experiment. He read the entire Bible cover to cover, took copious notes, and followed its rules as closely as possible. The result was his book, The Year of Living Biblically. One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible, and it actually made the New York Times bestseller list uh, last year. I mean, most religious people say they believe in the Bible, but what if you tried to follow all its rules for a full year? You probably try to be a good person each day to treat others using the golden rule, but could you faithfully follow the literal rules of the Bible, all of them, for an entire year? One man recently tried. Thou shalt not kill, steal, or covet thy neighbor's wife. Words to live by, especially if your author, A.J. Jacobs. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. A.J. spent a full year on a spiritual quest. His goal, to follow the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. Bible is an incredibly complex and subtle and complicated book. So I could spend a lifetime doing this and still not figure it all out. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Along the way, he altered his appearance, his eating habits, and his daily rituals. I play the liar every day, twice a day, as instructed in Psalms. His spiritual journey took him from the streets of New York... Can I go to 83rd and Central Park West, please? ...to the fields of Israel, all in search of meaning. Fifty-two weeks, ten commandments, and one extreme religious makeover. And A.J. Jacobs wrote a book about his journey. It's called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. A.J., nice to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for having a me. A little background, okay? I, if you're going to set out to try something like this, a lot of people would assume you have a fairly strong religious upbringing in your past. And, and in your case, that wasn't. Actually, that's true. I had very little religious background. Uh, as I say in the book, I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So not very. Uh, <laughs> Only by association. Right. All right. But so, I became very interested in religion, especially since I have a young son, and I want to know what to teach him about religion. So I decided to dive in head first and follow everything I could in the Bible. So you read all kinds of different versions of the Bible, right? right. And you said, you said, okay, look, clearly I've got to go with the 10th 
Ten Commandments. Those are the basics, all right? right. What were some of the more arcane rules, the, the lesser-known rules that you decided to follow? Well, I tried to follow everything without picking and choosing to see what was relevant to my life and what would make it better and what not. So there was also uh, don't wear clothes made of mixed fibers, uh, right on down to uh, stone adulterers. Stone adulterers. Where in your daily life do you get the opportunity to live that one out? Well, that one I actually did do. Uh, you stoned um, an adulterer? I did. Well, a man came up to me because I was dressed in my biblical garb, and he asked what I was doing, and I explained my project. And uh, he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, well, that would be great. So I took out some pebbles. <laughs> that would really help my project out. Exactly. And so what did you do? I took out a handful of pebbles. I thought that was my loophole. Some more symbolically. Right. Uh, and he grabbed the pebbles and threw them at my face, and I actually felt uh, in self-defense. I could throw one at him. And so you got into a little thing. Was oh. this like in a park or something? Exactly, in a park, that's right. On your average day, did you find that you were unable to fulfill this, or were there days where you could absolutely fulfill it for 24 hours at a time? Never. I always, uh, you're always going to break rules. I mean, especially the rules like uh, coveting and gossiping and lying. I was astounded by how much I sinned once you start to pay attention. How much you lied? I'm afraid so. Really? Yeah. So, so in other words, you had a rude awakening that on uh, on a daily basis you covet and you lie. Absolutely, it was it was a rude awakening, and uh, and you know I never I never fully followed all the rules, but you can try and you can become a better person. Oh. I never fully followed all the rules, but you can try and you can become a better person, hopefully. That pretty much summarizes what religion is all about. You do your best to keep the rules. For many of us, that's the rules of this book, the Word of God. And the idea being, if I keep the majority of these, my, my good somehow outweighs my bad, hopefully that will make me a better person. I gave it a good try, and hopefully God grades on the curve. I mean, if you want a literal definition of a religion, it's our man-made attempts to earn God's approval. And this, by the way, his book is hilarious. I mean, in addition to the stoning and adulterer in Central Park, uh, Jacob's actually, he let his beard, for instance, grow, as Leviticus 19 says. These are before and after pics. He said he had to deal with like 100 ZZ Top jokes a day. Now, the idea is this. We may laugh at these things, but following the religious law in the first century was central to being deemed accepted in God's sight. The problem was, how do you ever know if you've done enough? I mean, think about that. You would start measuring. You would start keeping track. A religious scorecard, as Jacob's does in his book. And that's what's going on here in verses 11 and 12 in Jesus' parable, right? It says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In other words, God, here's the list of things I haven't done. Haven't cheated? Check. Haven't done evil? Check. I'm not an evildoer. Uh, I haven't committed adultery? Check. Or even like this guy. Here's the bad stuff I shouldn't be punished for. And then, watch, here's the good things that I should be rewarded for. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. In other words, I don't just skip meals twice a week to concentrate on God. I give my money. I tithe. Woo, go tithers. Ten percent to the church. Not bad. I'm keeping the rules. Which means, God, you will therefore accept me. Thank you. And folks, this is the quid pro quo of religion. 
It is about what we do or what we don't do that whether or not God approves of us. So if you're religious, here's my question for you. Have you done enough this week to be a good person? Raise your hand if you've done enough this week to be a good person. Tom's are, <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure you haven't forgotten anything? Are you sure maybe there's something you're not telling us? Does your good outweigh your bad? How did it do last month? And quite honestly, folks, no offense, but this is why religious people suck. They do. Here's why. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean, again, I don't need to offend anyone, but there's this vague worry in religious scorekeeping that does more damage to authentic faith than anything else in our world. Because it means this, if you consider yourself a good person, you have to either A, constantly wander around a lot, under this low-lying black cloud of worry, anxiety, and guilt. I don't know if I'm measuring up. They do this. I forgot to do that. Or worse, if you feel like you are a pretty good person, you begin getting pleased and start eyeballing other people and say, well, I'm not doing bad, but uh, thank you, God, I'm not like that guy over here. It's pride and it's ugly. And that's where religion goes. Because behind the smile, the outward appearance is a hidden cancer in the heart that begins looking down its nose at all the people in the life around you. Remember who Jesus is talking to here? Look at verse 9. It says, Jesus told the story to some who were, let's read the phrase together, confident of their own righteousness and did what? Looked down on everybody else. In other words, he told this to people who considered themselves religious. Those who, who believe their success at keeping the rules, being a good person, that's what made them acceptable to God and that's what set them apart from everybody else. Look what happens to his prayers. Notice what it says, by the way, it says, he, I mean, we all pray in church, but the Pharisee did what? He stood up, look at me, and prayed about who? He prayed to God, he prayed about what? Himself. See, religion puts the focus on me, all about how I'm following God, I'm doing the right stuff, and how you're falling short. Sweet Jesus, thank you that I'm not like him. And see, that toxic religion leads to a theology of the other guy. When we look at other people who aren't living up to the rules, we break out the labels, the boxes. We can define, well, this, by the way, God, in case you're wondering, is who I'm not. I'm not a thief. I'm not a cheat. I mean, sex, money. I've been keeping my nose clean, handling it all responsibly. I am not like those people or that woman or the, the other men. <laughs> it's an ugly prayer. It is a religious prayer. Now, look. We don't stone adulterers anymore. <laughs> and, and, and we don't obsess about gnats in our drinking water. But we do have labels and boxes of our own, don't we? Yeah? I mean, see, if you hang around church long enough and you absorb the gospel of religion practiced by most people, it will inevitably take you to where it took the Pharisees. To actually settle for an imitation faith. One that specializes in highlighting the external spectacular sins and brokenness of other people and turning a blind eye to the internal spirit of judgment that is welling up in our own heart. In other words, you guys know this. It's easy to take a shot at, at, at someone caught in adultery. I mean, there's no question about their sin. I mean, sometimes the, the consequences are spectacular, right? A broken marriage, a family torn apart, an STD, a pregnancy. Sometimes there's no way to hide it. And so we construct what I like to call an invisible hierarchy of sin. 
In other words, I say, let me get my little bucket out here. I get to say, you know what? So what? I'm not the perfect husband, but thank God I'm not like so-and-so who cheated on his wife. I mean, I'm not perfect, but that guy, come on. And, and, and I got my little bucket here of, of cards some of you put in last week, your, your sins. And if you're religious, this is where it gets weird, because the sins of other people become oddly comforting. Because you are like, well, well, I certainly would never cheat, and I would certainly, if I did, never get divorced like him. I mean, that's a biggie. I mean, you totally blew it, right? You, you actually uh, you wrecked your marriage because of your porn problem. Yeah, I mean, just gosh, that is traffic, tragic. Let me, let, me just, let me just pray for him. Lord, would you help Tom with his, uh, with his pornography addiction, which is so much worse than my private gossip about it to my friends? Yeah, not bad. Again, there are capital sins that we make our list and we spotlight the more spectacular brokenness in the lives of other people so that it kind of conceals our hidden attitude of condemnation and judgment that's lurking just underneath. Because we all have these, don't we? I mean, thank goodness I, I, I didn't cheat on my wife like, uh, like Kevin did, which is far worse than the private affair that I'm carrying on with my work. Yeah, my workaholism. It's a little bit more socially acceptable. Thank you, Lord, for the invisible hierarchy of sins that makes me feel good about how I'm doing. Why do we do this? I mean, why, why does the religious heart elevate some sins above others in a way that God never intended? Well, for one, it makes us allowed to feel like we're making some progress. <laughs> and we contrast our lives against the backdrop of someone else's more spectacular brokenness. It does highlight how good we are. I mean, you may be divorced. Maybe you are hooked on porn. But gosh, at least you're not gay. Oh, yeah, he's going there. Yeah, let's just all say it together. Thank God I'm not like those people. Seriously, that's one we can all jump on. I mean, if you're a, a good evangelical or you're a good Catholic homosexuality, defining issue for both religious and secular people, they feel very passionate about it. And I mean, just raising the topic here, I can, some of you are going to, I'm turning up the temperature a little bit and you're getting like, I can see you're going to tense up. Because if you consider yourself religious, then, then you're like, but dude, if, if, I, if I take the Bible literally, then I got to denounce that. And, and, and some of you, you know what? If you consider yourself, you relate to this guy. Like, here's, there's your hierarchy. But if you relate to this guy, you're the outsider. You're like, oh, go get him, Pastor Tim. Kick judgmental religious people in the teeth. And you're getting angry. And you want. But let me ask you this. Is homosexuality really the issue? Or is Jesus raising a larger issue of the heart? One morning, I was meeting in my office with a business client who was starting to become a friend. He knew I was a Christian, and I knew he was openly gay. We talked mostly about how my business could benefit his, and I thought we were finished. But then, almost out of the blue, he asked me a question that would haunt me. He said, why do you hate us so much? You, Christians, and us, gay people. Why do you hate us so much? Well, as you can imagine, I started to get defensive. I found myself excusing and explaining Christian behavior. The 
problem was that the longer I defended Christians, the worse it got. He talked about nicknames and mimicking. He even talked about stories of hate. So how could I possibly defend such non-Christian behavior from Christians? I heard God whisper, Do you really blame him for thinking this way? It's true, and I can't deny it. Christians have treated gay people with disdain and with hate. And that day, I discovered that I was in the front of the line. This is not a gay issue. This is a love issue. By and large, when someone doesn't agree with my Christian worldview, I can become unloving. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand for what we believe in. I'm just saying that in my stance for my beliefs, I quit loving. I'm admitting it right now. I judge and condemn people outside the church. My actions prove it. It's scary to admit that I can go to church, join a Bible study, and serve on a ministry team, all without ever loving people who believe differently than I do. My heart breaks at how much I believe in Jesus, but don't love like Jesus. My heart breaks with the cold truth that there is a world dying out there, and I would rather be right than offer them life. Love is the issue. Would you rather be right or would you rather be loving? How you answer that question determines who you will identify with up here on stage, the Pharisee or the tax collector, because there's the religious type and then there's the more spectacular sinner. And truth be told, they have a lot more in common than we'd like to admit. I mean, homosexuality is an issue all our sexuality is. I mean, literally, personally, as a follower of Jesus who, who, who believes in the plain meaning of Scripture, I'm heartbroken. I am heartbroken for gay people. I am heartbroken for straight people. Heartbroken because the sexual brokenness in our culture at large is literally out of control. I mean, literally, the, the, con the confusion. I mean, sex designed by God, not a dirty thing. A gift from God to men and women meant to actually be an act of giving, of sacrifice within the covenant of marriage between a, a man and a woman. What's sex nowadays? We sell shampoo with it. It's a commodity. I mean, literally, lust is our way of life. It's all there is. It's how I get my needs met. It's, it's a cheap substitute for intimacy. That breaks my heart, and I know it breaks God's heart too, because sin always does. But I think that the heart of the matter we miss is when the church elevates one sin as the singular emblem of wickedness and depravity while we neglect the more hidden sins of our own heart that Jesus is highlighting here. That's why it's so easy for people to tune out the church's voice because the tone of our prayers isn't authentic compassion. It's, 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 it's political judgment. Lord, I thank you and ask you to prevent the perverse agenda of the sodomites from taking over our country. I mean, what is that? Literally, because we know, Jesus, that is far worse than the private lusts of my heterosexual heart, which nobody sees but me. Think about this. See, folks, Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it perfectly and literally take it to a different level that no one could possibly reach. 
In Matthew 5, he said this. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who, let's read this phrase together, what? Looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his where? In his heart. In other words, you who are so anxious to spotlight the spectacular brokenness of others, look in the mirror. What is going on on the inside? Because when you look there, you're going to have enough to worry about yourself. In Adventures in Missing the Point, Christian author Tony Campolo writes, he says, Jesus undoubtedly knew about homosexuality, and we can assume that he held to the teachings of the Torah on the subject. But nowhere does he condemn gays and lesbians. In fact, Jesus never mentions homosexuality even once. Homosexuality just isn't on his top ten list of sins. What is number one on that list, however, is judgmental religious people who look for sin in the lives of others without dealing with the sin in their own. Do you see what he's saying? He's not justifying gay folks who sin just the opposite. He's saying now that Jesus has revealed the heart of God to us, not just the law, the inner attitude counts as much as the outward action. And when we highlight the external brokenness of, of that guy or whew, those people, we actually turned a blind eye to the religious pride that's actually growing like an invisible cancer on the inside of our own heart. Folks, there is no top ten list in God's view. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, personally speaking, as a heterosexual man who struggles with my thought life, who struggles with lust in many ways, I have just as many purity issues as my gay brothers and sisters. But see, my, my thoughts are hidden. They're more easily concealed. And quite honestly, they're socially acceptable. And therefore, it's very easy for me to kind of cluck my tongue and look down my nose and say, God, thank you so much. I ain't like that guy. Yes, you are. It's just a matter of degrees. Who's on your invisible hierarchy of sins? Who, 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 in, who's on your list? That in your passion for defending the truth of God, somewhere along the line, you abandoned the purpose of the truth of God and failed to love. Because love is the issue. I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, you know you've certainly made God into your own image when he hates all the same people you do. Yeah? That's when you know. Sadly, I mean, I'll be honest, I mean, a lot of Christian churches were only known for what we're against, not what we're for. Like the devil said in the opening video, I love that. He goes, what do you, what do you, I mean, we know what Christians are. You're anti-gay, you're anti-abortion, you're anti-evolution, you're anti-taxes. It all blends together because we're known for finger pointing. It's why the church has lost its voice and our generation is leaving in droves, literally. I remember watching this episode of The Simpsons where Homer talks to Ned Flanders. You know, Ned Flanders, he's like the, he, he represents like the next door um, conservative Christian guy. And Homer says to him, he says, hey, where's your family been all summer? You know what Flanders answers? He says, we went away to a Christian camp. We were learning how to be more judgmental. <laughs> Ouch. My question is, where is that camp and why is it so well attended? I mean, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. To literally put back to what it was created to be through redeeming love. And religion doesn't lead to love and life, at least to judgment and death. I mean, that's where religion leads. And that's why some of you have been robbed. You have been robbed by religion. It's that serious. Because when you take it to its logical conclusion, religion can't even keep its own rules. It's crippling. 
When we begin keeping all these boundary markers on the outside and inwardly, you know what happens? It's like the Grinch. Our hearts literally shrink and it can't even have the capacity to do the two things that Jesus says summed up the entire law. Do you remember that? Someone said, what, what, teacher, what's the most important rule? He said, oh, I can sum up this entire book in two things. Love God and love others. You keep that one. Love is the issue. And if you swallow the religious pill, guess what? It will cripple you. Because you will not be able to love God. You know why? Because guess who God comes be through the religious prism? He is now a small-minded bookkeeper with a scorecard. Watching. You ever, you ever sit in front of a, a, an accountant? Think of like a cosmic accountant. You get your taxes done. You, you just, it's just fearful. I'm not doing enough. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't cross that T, dot that I. There's no fear in love, but religious people find it very hard to truly love God. They might be able to fear Him, but to love Him, it's impossible. And certainly they can't love others because others go into boxes. We slap labels on them and our compassion dries up because we dehumanize them and we criticize and we condemn and we use them to make ourselves feel better. I want you to think about that. Religion prevents us from loving God and loving others. The two commands that Jesus says sums up the entire law. Religion's a crock. It's why it doesn't work. And in the end, we're unable to love ourselves. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean like some pop psychology way. I just mean in our honest moments, we know no matter how good a performance we command or how much we try to keep it all together, we know we're falling short. I mean, I mean, we have, we have to turn a blind eye to the inside of our cup, lest the truth be revealed that actually the inside of my cup is dirty. I mean, my hands may be clean, but my heart is a cesspool of judgment and condemnation. And we have to keep that sealed off and unwilling to go there and just keep posing, lest the truth be discovered that I've failed, failed in the most central way possible. I have failed to love. That I may have a faith that can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I have what? Nothing. I am nothing. That's why religion doesn't work. Because love is always the issue. So if religion doesn't save, my question is this. What does? Back to the text. The people listening to Jesus' story would have been shocked by the ending. Let's look at it together. Because in contrast to this religious guy who makes a very good showing over here, Jesus says this. Look at verse 13. It says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a what? A sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified or made right before God. Let's read the last verse together. Very important. For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Talk about a contrast. The Pharisee goes to church and he stands up and prays aloud about himself. While the tax collector, he stands at a distance and can't even look up to heaven. He can't meet eyes. And he beats his breast and assumes this posture of total humility before God, which is the exact opposite of the religious type. Why? Because this guy has one thing that is essential to the kingdom of God. He may be all these things, but he's honest. He's honest that I got nothing to offer you, God. I can't even pretend my life is so foul inside and out. I mean, people looked at him and he'd be like, people look at me and they don't like me. God, you look at me. You shouldn't like me. I, I look at me. I don't even like me. I have nothing to offer you. Kyrie eleison. That is the Greek 
for his prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can we say it together? Kyrie eleison. It's not just a Mr. Mr. song from the 80s. It was known as the penitence prayer in the early church. And it was used in ancient liturgies to express the inner posture of the heart of humility needed to become before a holy God. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy, grace, extravagant, generous favor I don't deserve. When I fall short, I need an outside source, a savior, enter Jesus. See, folks, religion is about me, my works, my good deeds, my efforts. Christianity, the good news, the gospel of mercy and grace, it's about Jesus. It has nothing to do with us. It's about believing that God sent his son not to establish a new religion, but to shatter it. Not to condemn the world, but to live the perfect life we never could. And when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he literally, Scripture says, he canceled the law. And he set us free from the law of sin and death. Free to not only be forgiven of our sins, from small to spectacular, everyone that keeps us at a distance from God, but free to live out of love and not fear. I mean, what would that be like for you? To walk out of here truly believing there's, there's nothing you can do to earn God's approval. But to simply actually repent of your religious striving and trust in the gift of grace. What would that set you free to do? To know that God loves you right now as much as an infinite God is capable of, which is to say infinitely through Jesus. See, folks, fear of judgment, it literally doesn't motivate us to draw close to God. It actually pushes us away. Fear pushes away. You guys know that. But love does the opposite. It draws us in. I got an amazing email. This is a shattering email I received from one of you. A woman named Kathleen, she said, Hey, Pastor Tim, I have been saved for over 20 years and never realized how judgmental I was until coming to Liquid. I sit week after week and just cry. It's like every religious bone in my body is being broken. We were part of a previous church with a lot of emphasis on performance. We were leaders being pushed into full-time ministry, and then the pastor left the church in financial ruin, and it devastated my husband. All that to say, my whole family was so burned and burned out by church. We were there for 15 years every time the door was open. Listen to her words. I put so much pressure on myself to be the what? Perfect Christian. Our pastor stressed the platinum standard. Everything had to be excellent, excellent, excellent. Grace was not a very common word to me. Religious activity, yes. Evangelizing, yes. But along with that, unfortunately, words like shame and never good enough became who I was. It became my identity, performance, religion. Although the pastors never knew that. They thought we were the perfect Christian family. We are very good actors. So when I came here, I was like, what's the catch? What do I have to do? Why am I not feeling guilty? Why am I not feeling any condemnation? This is too good to be true. And then I read your black and white pen. You got the pen in your hand. What's it say? Because faith is a journey, not a what? A guilt trip. And I started to get it. Thank you for showing me a whole new side of Jesus that is making him so irresistible and causing me to love him in a deeper way than I've ever experienced before. Folks, if you conceive of God as having this long list of expectations and handing out medals for performance or effort, you have bought quid pro quo religion hook, line, and sinker, and your faith will only become slavish and fearful and exhausting. It is the essence of duty-bound religion. 
But if you throw your trust in God, if it's based on grace, a humility of heart that is brutally honest and throws itself on the mercy of God, it becomes a delight, not a duty. Because Jesus is God's perfect gift to you. A gift from which you are to never recover. I mean, it's supposed to shatter you. When you trust Jesus for your soul acceptance by God, you get a brand new identity. Who are you? (laughs) I'll tell you who I am. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a jerk who has nothing to offer. And I am accepted in every way possible by the creator of the universe. (laughs) He loves me as I am with all my faults and failures. Here's why. Because he covers them. Jesus has covered him. He's paid for me. He, He accepts me right now as I am. Imagine that. What does that kind of acceptance do to your heart? You know what happens? All of a sudden, you want to change. You actually want to embrace other people because you look at them and you say, oh my goodness, you look at the the brokenness of their lives and and, and you realize you have more in common with their brokenness than you do with your your rightness. And you accept them. And you have a special embrace for for broken people because I'm like, you're like, that's who I am. That's who I was. That's how Jesus Christ found me this way. I was helpless. I had nothing and he gave his life for me. He's changing me. You don't have anything to fear. Come to Jesus because there's no fear in perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. Folks, in the end, the real problem with religion is that it just doesn't work. Take it from a guy who's tried. Take it from a guy who grew up in a religious home, going to church week after week. I went to religious camp in the summer and I followed the rules for most of my childhood and I spent the better portion of my college years in my 20s pretty sure that God simply was looking down at me with crossed arms, shaking his head in disappointment. And guess what? I turn that same condemnation around to everyone else in my life. It just doesn't work. Because religion leads to one of two places. I think Mark Driscoll has said this perfectly. Religion leads to either pride or despair. Pride, meaning you made a list, you tried to be a good person, you earned your salvation, and you thought you did a good job, so now you're just an arrogant, self-righteous, condescending jerk. Looking at other people, arms crossed. Well, too bad they didn't, you know, they don't have any self-control. I can't believe what she did to her life. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Those are repugnant, self-righteous, smug, finger-pointing religious people. It is the essence of pride. And pride is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride will let you cut the line to hell, but it ain't going to get you in the kingdom of God. And the standing back and pointing fingers and judging people and the holier than thou and looking down on them because they're not your peer morally. That's where religion inevitably leads and you become the ultimate Pharisee. Or it ends in despair. If it's not pride, some of you are there, by the way. Some of you are there because you're like, that's not me, I'm the other, I'm despair. Because I try and try, but I'm not just making any progress. I'm not doing enough. I mean, I try to get up early and read my Bible, but it's like... You know, like I meant to pray, but then I just kind of, I don't know, I just like, I like missed the 90s. I don't even really know what happened. I just, I went to church that one time, but I, I, like, I, I like couldn't keep up appearances. I mean, the mask I had to wear for that, pretending everything was okay when it wasn't. <laughs> Folks, there's more. At least utter despair or pride. Because you got to stand at a distance like the tax law. You can't even look up to heaven, but beat your breast at a distance and limp along through life under a low-hanging cloud of condemnation and guilt. Pride or despair, that's where religion goes. You know what faith in Jesus leads to? Humble, confident joy. What's the last verse? What does Jesus say? 
Let's read it together. All of our campuses, big loud voice. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble. You know what? I'm not a good person. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a sinner. And you know what? I didn't do a thing to save myself. Jesus did it for me. I mean, I, I, I know I'm saved. I know I'm accepted by God. Not because of my life, but because of his. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. The focus is on Jesus and what he's done for you. And people can accuse you and say, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're any better than I am. And you just say, oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm probably worse. You want to hear about my private thought life? People are like, no, what? <laughs> it freaks them out. Because that kind of freedom is unnerving. I mean, to be able to be completely honest about who you are and you don't get defensive about stuff. You're just, you're humble and you're confident. Because you're like, you know what? God loves me. God knows me. He cares for me. All my sins are forgiven. I know my salvation is secure. And I know that my life, it actually, um, it can change. It will change. It is changing. Because all things are possible through who? Christ who gives me strength. So he's changing me. Jesus, one at a time. He's working through my list right now. I'm not there yet. But he is never going to leave me or forsake me until he takes me to the very end and takes my hand and leads me to the Father's house of love. And I will be there and I will be a reflection of him through his strength and his power and not my own even though I'm a stiff-necked disobedient child who falls and falls again he's changing me confidence not in yourself but in Jesus that's where authentic faith in Jesus Christ leads humble confident joy you're happy that is something religion can never produce happiness Religious people are either self-righteous or sad, but they never taste joy. God wants you to be happy. I want you to be happy. For that, you need Jesus. You do. I mean, each of us. The Pharisees hidden out there among us, the tax collectors too. Some of you are here today and you need to repent of your sin. And some of you are here today and you need to repent of your religion. And together, we all need to come to Jesus. We do. That's the invitation. To say, I'm no longer the religious type. Or I am done standing at a distance like the rebel. Kyrie eleison. I am stepping into my true identity as a forgiven and free child of God. That's who I am in Christ Jesus. Those are the choices. Who do you identify with more? What's the next step you need to take today to humble yourself before God? In your bulletin, all of our campuses, you will find a connection card looks like this. Would you take this out for just a minute? We want to give you a choice to respond. And what we did is we put on here two things that you could identify with. On the back, it says, I'm the Pharisee. I'm repenting of religion and renewing my faith through grace. If you're the Pharisee, check that box. Say, this is my moment. You, somewhere along the way, you gave up your first love and gave into religion. Come back to Jesus. Maybe it's the second one. I'm the tax collector and I'm praying, Kyrie eleison. And asking Jesus for mercy to forgive my sins. Maybe this is your first time. You had no idea. You bought religion. No wonder. And for the first time you're hearing about God's extravagant gift of love and grace in Jesus Christ. Check whatever box it is that you feel you identify most with today. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Father God, right now, we thank you, Jesus, for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are the way, the life, and the truth, Father. And no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, so much 
for this story about men who both fell short. Lord, we all fall short. We all know that. And we just want to be honest about that in this moment. And we throw ourselves on your mercy. And we pray, as the Christians have done through thousands of years, Kyrie eleison, God have mercy on us. Call us back to our first love, Father God. As we put these cards, even we we leave them on our seats and respond to you today, Father. Let us leave behind our performance-based religion. Let us leave behind our sin that has entangled us and set us free to live and to love in the freedom of Christ. We pray that in his powerful and matchless name. And all God's people, let's say it together. Amen.